0: Welcome to The Grow Podcast. I'm Christy McSweeney, and if you run a business or are thinking of taking the leap, this podcast is for you. I'll be interviewing special guests who run small businesses to large corporations. Each episode will include practical tips and advice to help your business thrive in this changing environment, relayed to you by people who have done it, are doing it, and some who have even done it multiple times. Proudly presented to you by Census, Australia's number one supporter of small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I will be chatting with Sally Moten and Derek Humphrey-Smith from Lander & Rogers about employment and workplace relations. Lander and Rogers is a leading independent law firm with over 500 employees in Australia. In 2020, Lander and Rogers was recognised as an employer of choice by the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Sally is a partner and works with employers from a variety of industries in the areas of employment law, industrial relations, safety and administrative law. Derek is a partner and head of international. Derek practices in all areas of workplace relations and safety law with experience in all Australian jurisdictions. Employment and workplace relations covers a very long list of topics, including workforce management and disputes, workplace safety, employment contracts and policies, industrial relations and enterprise bargaining, post-employment restraints, anti-discrimination and equal opportunity, bullying sexual harassment and unfair dismissal. Today, we'll be discussing several of these topics as well as other issues. Sally and Derek, thanks so much for your time. 2020 was an interesting year for employment and workplace relations. I wanted to start with the shift in employee expectations as well as community expectations in regards to sexual harassment, and what that means for businesses of all sizes. Landa and Rogers recently announced a no-bystander policy in their workplace for dealing with sexual harassment. Derek, perhaps you could provide an overview of this particular policy and its origins.
1: Thanks, Christy. And uh, look, certainly there have been shifts in uh, community expectations and I think awareness of employees' rights in the area of sexual harassment. I, I think as a firm... We were caught a little bit off guard uh, that there was so much media interest in a change that we thought was just the right thing to do. We think discretionary language in policies in an area uh, as critical as sexual harassment is probably unhelpful in 2020, so we wanted to make that more mandatory, hence the change for people in our workplaces who witness anything that makes them feel uncomfortable or makes another person feel uncomfortable that they are required to come forward and uh, put the firm on notice that that's occurred. And as a result, that will then be investigated and dealt with in an appropriate way. So so that's really the backdrop to it. We're just surprised that more firms had not made this change previously. And uh, it appears that we're first to market uh, here in Australia and certainly talking to a whole range of our corporate clients about making a similar change.
0: Sally, were you surprised by the policy? Do you think other organisations will introduce a similar policy?
2: Um, No, I'm not surprised. I think it's something that we can be really proud of here at Landers that we've uh, really adopted this bystander policy where if you walk past the behaviour, you're expected to report it. And that's a standard that's been in place in safety law, safety practice for a long time. So the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And we've now put that in place for sexual harassment. So if you walk past it and you don't say anything, then you're accepting that that's okay. So the onus is now on you as a bystander or the recipient of the behaviour that you must report it. And it's something that the firm can be really proud of that we've taken a stance like this. I've received emails from practitioners in the industry to say, congratulations, what a great step that the firm's taken. In terms of I guess, how clients can manage it and reporting of it in their organisations, they could decide to adopt a similar approach. I don't think it's across the board, this mandatory reporting obligation, particularly for bystanders. There's often, there is a discretion in policies, so I think it's taking it to that next level. So I think it's a really positive move that hopefully will become the norm.
1: By making reporting mandatory, in these circumstances, it addresses one of the issues that impacts all organisations, where there are differentials in power. So where that power gradient exists, it removes the, I suppose, discretion for a witness to this behaviour to take action. This imposes a positive requirement on the person to do so. And I suppose in extreme circumstances, a failure to do so would be in breach of policy and therefore um, potentially lead to disciplinary action. So it's trying to level that playing field in terms of the power gradient.
0: In many workplaces, employees may fear losing their job if they raise issues about sexual harassment. What is your advice to employers in how best to deal with concerns? raised by employees, perhaps using some experiences from your own work or industry trends?
2: Well, obviously, there's that statutory protection. So, in the Fair Work Act, there's the general protections provision. So, if you make a complaint as an employee and then you suffer adverse action as a result, there's a protection there for you that you can bring a claim either if you're dismissed as a consequence or even if you're not dismissed, you're allowed to bring a claim. So anything that employers do to protect or assist complainants on top of that is really building on that statutory framework. Things that we've seen clients do in the industry include having an anonymous reporting hotline so that employees can ring. They are then dealt with Electronically, so that they can put their details in. There's never any actual one-on-one um, discussion with the complainant, so you don't even know if they're a female or a male. All you know is that they're a complainant that's put this complaint in. Their complaints are then investigated, so that really protects those employees that feel scared about coming forward. But I must say, if there's a culture within an organisation where someone doesn't feel comfortable reporting something like that, I think the organisation should be looking at itself and asking itself questions about why people are fearful of reporting, because that really isn't the right culture that you want to be having as an organisation.
0: Sally, employers cannot dismiss their employees in circumstances that are harsh, unjust or unreasonable. What would you describe as meeting the criteria of harsh, unjust or unreasonable?
2: What it really goes to is whether or not as an employer you have a valid reason to dismiss your employee. So it can't be something that's fanciful, that you've just made up, that's capricious. You know, you can't just not like someone and decide to dismiss them. It has to be a reason and stand up to scrutiny. On top of that, you have to ensure that the employee is afforded procedural fairness. And that's a really tricky issue for many employers and particularly smaller employers to make sure that employee is notified of the reasons for any discipline action against them or also reasons or allegations against them. They have to be told those and given a chance to answer and then um, the employer has to seriously consider any of the responses before making a decision to dismiss. So that's the procedural fairness element and then there's on top of that a harshness component or the other factors. So is the employee older in age, so they're going to have more difficulty in getting a job? Are they supporting their family and the only income earner? Do they have children with disabilities? Do they themselves have a disability? All those type of personal factors the Fair Work Commission will take into account in deciding even as an, if you have a valid reason, would the dismissal otherwise be harsh? So it is quite a high threshold to get over, and we're certainly seeing this year in 2020 many more unfair dismissal claims being lodged. In
0: 2019-20, the Fair Work Commission received over 16,500 unfair dismissal applications, accounting for nearly 50% of their workload. Derek, what happens once an application is made and how long is the process?
1: It can vary, Christy, but as a matter of course, the Commission, once it receives an unfair dismissal application will list a matter for conciliation. So that process tends to come on quite quickly depending on workload, but at the moment we're seeing um, most listings for conciliation between one and two months from the date the application is made. Obviously the employer needs to put on its response to the application and following conciliation, and in most of the cases, settlement does seem to still be reached. But uh, I think what we're going to see, Christy, as a result of the pandemic that uh, we've seen in 2020 is I think it's going to be much more difficult for dismissed employees to find alternative employment on the open labour market. I think you're going to see employees fighting much harder for the primary remedy under the unfair dismissal provisions, which is reinstatement to their role, or alternatively, they're going to be pursuing higher awards of damages for economic loss because I think employees are going to see genuine economic loss as a result of the labour market just being much tougher than it was, for example, at the end of 2019.
0: Sally, COVID-19 has impacted businesses. Are employers using it as a reason to dismiss employees?
2: I think COVID-19 has certainly, as you've pointed out, had a huge impact on businesses. And so, there have been those that genuinely couldn't function with the number of employees that they had which is why the government set up that JobKeeper scheme where you could stand down people but they continued to get paid. So I think in a large part that JobKeeper scheme really address that issue where if you as an employer had suffered a significant loss due to COVID in your business and they had those thresholds that they put in place, then you could stand down your employees, receive the income from the government and continue to pay them so that they're there when you need them, um, when your business gets back up and running. So I think on the most part, we're not seeing dismissals due to COVID. I do think that there's the odd occasion where an employer's dressing up a stand down and relying on the COVID ability to stand people down just to get people out of the workforce they don't like. I would say that I've probably seen that on occasion where it's not reasonable and the person's been stood down because they may have had a grievance or something with the employer.
1: Can I add to that? I think in most cases, certainly in our practice where we're dealing with a diverse range of employers across across all sectors, employers have generally tried really hard to do the right thing and to keep people in work, which I think uh, we're often being asked to advise around how we can extract employees from from a workforce. That's generally not been the case. I think what we're now in a period of until JobKeeper comes to an end is employers are now busying themselves with trying to evolve those roles that perhaps would otherwise be redundant in what the, the new normal looks like. They're trying to evolve those roles, redeploy people into the areas of their business that they're going to see growth in, whereas other parts of the business, I think, are are going to be severely impacted. But generally, people have tried really hard to keep people in employment because of the social impact of the job loss.
0: Sally, what advice would you give to businesses so they don't end up before the Fair Work Commission?
2: I think there's some general steps that businesses can take. So one of those is to make sure that they really thoroughly look into any allegations against the employee. So if a complaint is made against someone, then you have to make sure that you don't just jump to a conclusion and you don't just take what someone's telling you as the truth, that you actually do make some independent inquiries to get to the bottom of factually what's happened. You have to also make sure that you give the employee who's being alleged to have done the wrong thing procedural fairness. And what that looks like is giving them the allegations against them. So making sure you set those out, usually in writing, got to give them enough information so that they also are able to respond to that allegation meaningfully. And then it's really good to give an employee the opportunity to respond to any proposed penalty. So if you're proposing to dismiss someone, you should really let them know that you're proposing to dismiss them, let them have a chance to respond to that, tell you the reasons why that's not appropriate, consider that before then making your final decision. And if you follow those general rules in terms of giving someone the allegations, investigating, ensuring procedural fairness, having a good reason for dismissal, that invariably sets you up well if a claim is made against you.
1: Christy, one of the other issues which has seen the Fair Work Commission have some focus on this in recent times, is the way a decision to terminate an employee is communicated to that employee. We've seen a number of examples whereby employers have thought social media might be an appropriate manner or vehicle to deliver that news. And the Commission is sending employers in Australia a very clear message that they need to do better than that. And uh, and I think always a meeting in person with the employee when that news is delivered is the best approach. Obviously, there'll be some occasions when that's just not possible and uh, you will need to use email, for example, or certainly a, a couriered letter to the person's home address. But ideally, that meeting should be conducted in person. And uh, I, I think um, people who are thinking about using Facebook or WhatsApp or these sorts of platforms, it's not a great idea.
2: That's a good point that Derek makes. And there's been a recent case where someone was dismissed via a text message and the Fair Work Commission has said it's not good enough, that's not procedural fairness and you need to do better, as Derek says, and bring them in and tell them the reason and have that discussion with them and treat them humanely. So they are sending a strong message that they want employers to go further than just a text or a social media message.
0: Derek, apart from unfair dismissal applications, what is the increase in general protection applications? Because I understand they contribute to a significant proportion of Fair Work Commission's workload.
1: Christy, certainly the the more serious matters that come into our practice are in that general protection space. And I think for employees, they are more attractive because unlike unfair dismissals uh, in a general protections application, the onus rests with the employer to prove that the reason they have taken adverse action, in this case dismissal, is not because of a protected attribute. So that's what we call a reverse onus of proof. Um, So that makes it more difficult for employers to defend. But the other reason why general protections applications are so attractive is that they have unlimited damages available to the employee. Hence, we're seeing some cases in that jurisdiction with awards of damages in the many millions of dollars coming out of the federal court. And as I said, in respect of economic loss, because the labour market is going to be so much more difficult for employees, I think we're going to see much higher awards of damages because of the economic loss that employees will be sustaining. Employees, when they've made a claim, have a duty to mitigate their loss. And I think you'll see employees making lots of job applications, but perhaps unsuccessfully, unless the labour market responds uh, as we hope it does. But um, I think that's going to be a continued source of work for the Fair Work Commission and the Federal Court into the future.
2: And in addition to what Derek said about those award of damages, we've seen just in the last few months, the latter part of 2020, a General Protection's decision where the damages awarded were over $5 million dollars. That's a huge risk for employers if you're faced with a decision, you know, you've not only defended it through the courts and then you're hit with the damages award of over five million. So they do present a really significant risk to business.
0: Derek and Sally, I understand that workplace safety regulators are taking an increased interest in sexual harassment. Can you comment on that?
1: Yes, certainly, Christy. I think it's a really interesting development and an important development. Sexual harassment, for example, traditionally has been something under the civil law, under equal opportunity legislation where it requires a complainant Uh, to make a complaint and then um, sue for damages under that legislation. We've seen workplace bullying be a safety issue right from the start. And that's certainly regulated by entities such as uh, WorkSafe in Victoria and, and Safe Work in New South Wales. What we're seeing with the evolution in the sexual harassment space is that sexual harassment is now being firmly regarded as a safety issue by regulators. And I think as a result, because of the potential penalties, involved for employers this will take uh, sexual harassment it will elevate it even further than it should be already to the boardroom table in the same way that safety sits as a standing agenda item for most board meetings i think you'll see sexual harassment firmly there as a standing agenda item as well because of the prospect of uh, safety regulators intervening uh, in that workplace
0: sally We've talked about the impact COVID-19 has had on workplaces and workplace relations. What has been the impact on the duty of care that employers have when staff are working from home?
2: It's a really interesting issue, particularly in relation to bullying, because you would think that if you're not working together in the workplace, then there's no opportunity to bully one another, so therefore there should be a decrease in those claims But actually, certainly in my practice, I've seen a real increase this year in terms of allegations of bullying and requests for investigations of bullying. So even though we aren't working together, there are other means for people to bully each other in terms of social media, online messaging applications and I think as well, employees may just be feeling stressed and general sort of disgruntlement. So, therefore, they're coming forward more easily with complaints. So, I'm certainly not seeing the drop off that you would have expected to see in bullying complaints when we're working from home.
1: I think employees feel safer working from home as well, Sally. I think the preparedness to come forward that you mentioned. I think there's there's some some empowerment that occurs from being within the safety of their home, raising issues. They want a healthy workplace where their well-being is paramount. And I think to achieve that, uh, they can do that, particularly by participating in workplace investigations through Zoom and Microsoft Teams. Everyone's quite comfortable with that approach now.
2: And it's certainly another one of those issues that's getting a lot of attention, isn't it? Ambulance Victoria coming out and saying that they're going to be looking into bullying. So it's, along with sexual harassment, one of those topics that employers are still really grappling with and um, trying to get on top of, but it's a complex issue and it can take a lot of time.
0: Working from home obviously affects these types of issues.
2: It is. One thing that that may assist with is the collection of evidence So if you're engaging online and you're messaging each other online or you're engaging on social media, there should actually be a document trail of those messages being sent to each other. So that's something that can be really helpful for employers when they are investigating these matters to get a copy of those messages, which can then really establish the bullying and establish what the employee is saying, or it might actually establish a defence for the employer to say, well, actually it's not how the employee portrayed it at all. Here are these messages and they're actually quite innocent. So in a way that might actually help.
0: What advice would you both give to employers around the issue of employees who really enjoy working from home and don't want to go back to working in the office full time?
1: At the moment, you need to assess the role carefully. And say, is this just a matter of convenience for you, the employer who likes having everybody together in the one place? Or are there some, are there some genuine business reasons why the role you're talking about can't continue to be performed from home? So it might be you say, well, there is some significant team benefit of getting us all together, for example, on one day of the week, for example. So you're not going to be criticised, I don't think, if you were to agree on on one day a week where everyone's together in the office because, you know, you can have team meetings in person, you can collaborate together, you can work on little projects together. There There is some, uh, you know, often unquantifiable, but there is benefit. I think that would be recognised. When you start requiring three, four, five days in the office, I think you're going to struggle, is my assessment.
2: Especially if you haven't had a loss in productivity while everyone's been working at home. So law firms are a pretty good example where we seem to have worked really well working remotely and so far haven't really seen a hit of that on the bottom line. So how do you then say, well, it couldn't continue? It's a really tricky issue. But as Derek is saying, the the benefits of collaboration, I think innovation has really taken a hit how do you have those innovation discussions when you're all at home individually? They're things that come really naturally when you're just side by side in the office. And I think that's something that's really taken a hit while we've been working from home.
1: Yeah, and I think learning and development, particularly for our junior staff, I think it's easier at a more senior level like Sally and I are, but I think at a junior level, How do you pick up all that, you know, that learning by osmosis that occurs, yeah, that occurs just in the office when you're hearing what's going on and sitting alongside more senior people? And I also think therapeutically, it's good to get them out of their house, just getting them into an office environment and out of their bedrooms.
0: What closing advice would you provide to businesses of all sizes, from startups to large corporations, around the issues we've discussed?
1: expectations of employers and employees have changed markedly in the last two years. And I think for businesses to establish clear standards of conduct and behaviour for their employees to abide by is probably the most important step that businesses can take. Having a look at what policies and procedures um, might be in place, but also looking at what The leadership messaging might be from that business around uh, the expectations of employees, making sure that that reflects current expectations, and most importantly, where somebody doesn't meet the standards, taking action because we see on too many occasions employers digging themselves a hole by avoiding the difficult conversation, by avoiding putting an allegation to an employee for a response, and then down the track when that same employee does it again the employer tries unsuccessfully to rely on that previous example. And I think let's let's really make an effort to um, nip conduct in the bud and make it clear what the expectations are.
0: Sally Moten and Derek Humphrey-Smith from Lander and Rogers, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for listening to The Grow Podcast. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Census, Australia's number one supporter of small and medium-sized businesses.